Thanks, Alicia. Good morning. It's great to see all your beautiful faces this morning. You make this weather not feel as bad. It's great. You look lovely. Um, guys, uh, when you read the Bible, uh, you notice something really striking. Uh, there's a lot of things that are striking, but there's one thing that's really striking this week as I was thinking about it. Um, you see at the end of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis ends with Joseph's death. And then the book of Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. And then you have the book of Joshua, and that book ends in Joshua's death. This pattern keeps going. People keep dying, right? All these amazing figures, they keep dying. But then you get to the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you don't see a story merely of death. You see a story of resurrection. We see at the end of the Gospels, uh, the, those Gospels end with Jesus' resurrection, and that absolutely changed everything. It changed everything. And in fact, here in chapter 15, this news that Jesus rose from the dead, Paul calls the most important thing. He calls it the thing of first importance. And so I just kind of want to ask you this morning, what is the most important thing? What's the thing of first importance in your perspective? What is the most important thing in your life? In other words, what is it that if that thing failed or if that thing fell apart, if that thing caved in on itself, everything else would come crashing down with it. What is that? Uh, is it your physical health? That sounds like a natural one, right? I mean, if your physical health failed, everything else would kind of seem to fall apart, right? Is it just people that you love loving you? Is it making sure that people don't leave you, you know, the people that you love, whether through death or through conflict or something? Is it, is it your marriage? Is that the most important thing? Is it financial security? If you have that, then everything else is going to be okay at the end of the day. Is it graduating, right? Some of you, this is fresh, right? Here in June, graduating or something, if that thing weren't to happen, would everything else seem to fall apart in your life? What is most important? You can think of it this way. Imagine that you go to a restaurant that just opened, okay? You go to a restaurant that just opened, you, you saw their logo and their font, and you really loved it, right? So you're like, this is great. They have a great social media presence. I'm going to check this place out here in Corvallis, you, you go in, the setting is perfect, it's ideal for what you look for in a restaurant. Everyone is like extremely friendly, they have tons of seating, right, but it's still filled up in the room, right? The seating is really comfortable, they have a ton of parking, right? Things are going well, things are going really well, and it, it doesn't have high prices, like it's not, it's not overpriced, right? It's very fair in what they're charging for their food, and they serve your favorite meal, okay, biscuits and gravy, that's what they serve, okay? This is my dream. It doesn't have to be yours. This is my dream. I'm just going to live in this right now. Um, and that's, that's actually all they serve, okay? Again, this is my dream, okay? Uh, this is perfect. I order it, okay? The people bring out this biscuits and gravy. It smells good. Even the plates are awesome. The silverware is ideal. The napkins, they're wonderful, okay? The server's so friendly, okay? They put the, the biscuits and gravy down in front of me, I dive in and I quickly realize that the gravy is made of strictly mushrooms and camel's milk, okay? It's like a good Oregon gravy right there. <laughs> um, and then the biscuits, it's like a deep, dark rye bread that kind of tastes like a mixture between death and 10-year-old boy's dirty laundry, okay? 
Um, this is what it tastes like. Now, everything was perfect, but they got the meal wrong, right? Am I going to go back to that restaurant? Not at all, am I? Even though everything about it is like my ideal situation. Why? Because the most important thing broke apart, right? It wasn't good. The most important thing failed me. Almost everything was perfect, but they got the most important thing wrong. It broke down, therefore everything else did too. Guys, if that's just a meal, if that's just the way I would decide where I go to eat, then what about my life? What if the most important thing wasn't there? What if we lost that? Guys, this morning we're told the most important thing in the Christian life. It's not exactly everything we've been going through, all those things are really important, but they all find their place underneath this one great truth, the gospel. Everything we've worked up to at this point, if there's things that have upset you at all, things that have rubbed you the wrong way, they all find their place underneath this most important truth, the gospel. It's the message that Jesus died for sin and walked out of the grave three days later, a living and breathing and healthy, resurrected God-man. It changed everything. So uh, you can see this on the, on the screen, uh, what the most important thing is, the title of this message, and you see the roadmap here in the, the verses one through two, we see who the gospel is for, who the gospel is for. In verses three through eight, we see what the gospel is, and we see that it really did happen. Verses nine through 11, we see what the gospel does. This is where we're headed this morning in our passage. So the first thing we see here this morning critically is who the gospel is for. We see this in verses one through two. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, here in verse one, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Uh, Christians, uh, we seem to have a terrible memory uh, when it comes to remembering who we are before God because of Jesus. And Paul knows this. And based upon the contents of this letter, it seems like they've truly forgotten it many times and at many uh, forks in the road, the good news about Jesus. And so Paul starts here by saying, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. I want to bring it back to your memory. I want to end here. We need to be reminded of the gospel. In other words, it's never anything that I move beyond. And in fact, many followers of Jesus wrongfully think that the gospel is something to share with people who don't know Jesus, and that is what the gospel is for. That's who the gospel is for, but once I've received the gospel, it's now something that I, I seek to move beyond. We think that it's strictly for people who don't know Jesus, who aren't Christians, but these two verses here clearly tell us that the gospel is not just for non-Christians, it is completely and utterly essential for Christians. See, Paul says that he preached the gospel to them and they received it. And just so that we're on the same page this morning, because I'm not aware of everybody who's in this room this morning, um, I just want to ask, what is the gospel? What does that even mean? Because Paul's bringing it up here a lot. Well, the word gospel, it simply means good news. It simply means good news. And in fact, it wasn't originally a Christian word. It's not a word that Christianity created. It was a word most generally used in battle or if you're at war with another nation or something. And so here's how it would work. If one nation defeated another nation... What would happen is the king who won would send out his heralds or his messengers into the nearby streets of different towns and cities, and they would proclaim a gospel, a word of good news that their king had won the battle. So they would say, 
that the war was over, that the fighting was finished, and that there was now victory over our enemies, and now there is peace to be experienced. Guys, this is like really important to realize because the gospel, therefore, in Christianity means that it's not telling you some advice of what you need to do. The gospel is an announcement of something that has happened. In fact, you decidedly receive the news and you experience the benefits of someone else's achievement. That's what the gospel is. So it's how it would work if you were a citizen in one of those towns and this message came to you that the war was over and that your king and his army had actually won. If that came into your town, you received that good news and you now experience the joy of victory which you didn't accomplish. You receive the benefits of someone else's accomplishment. See, this is, this is what Christianity is about. It, it is what it's about. And this is what makes it completely different than every other belief system in the world. Because every other belief system tells you what you need to do in order to be accepted by God, but Christianity has a message. And it tells you what God has done for you, what God has accomplished for you. But you see, good news is only good news if you live with the reality of bad news. That's just the nature of it, right? I mean, could you imagine if you lived in a place that was at war and you didn't even know it? Let's just say America, we were at war, we had no idea, okay? So imagine you got word today that we defeated our greatest enemy, Australia, okay? Uh, you would probably respond with, uh, oh, what? Okay, cool. Um, are they okay? I mean, uh, did anybody die? I kind of like Australia. I've seen pictures and never been there, but it's really pretty. And um, I like their accent, you know? But I guess if we were at war with them, it's good that we defeated them. But at the end of the day, you're probably going to be a little concerned, right? That message of news is going to fall on a really confused heart, won't it? Because you had no idea about the reality that something wasn't good between you and Australia. But if you know that you are in a war and that your greatest enemy is not another person, it's not even Australia, okay? And your greatest enemy, you realize, is your own sinful heart, which actually wants to choose yourself and to run away from God and ignore him and rid yourself of him, if you can't seem to shake yourself free from your sin and if you actually hate it and you know that you're losing the battle and that one day you're gonna stare your greatest enemy death in the face and you know you're not going to win and you know that on the other side of that grave is a God that you've rejected, a glorious God. If that is your reality, that's not good news. But... If someone comes to you with an announcement that the war is over and the battle has been won and your enemy has been defeated and that the Son of God has lived a perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice and he died and paid the debt that you owed God because of your sin, not with money, but with his own life, and then Jesus announces on the cross, it is finished, the debt is paid, the battle is over, the victory is won, that would be really good news, and something you would probably joyfully receive as accomplished for you. This is what Paul's talking about. This is what it means fundamentally to be a Christian. It means that you receive salvation. I don't achieve it, I receive it. Jesus took my junk and he gave me his perfection. And so Paul says you've received this gospel, past tense, 
You heard it at one point, and you received it. There was a decided moment where you received it, you believed it. But then Paul says you received it, but not that it's just a past tense thing. He says what? You currently are standing in it, in which you stand. That's what he says. In other words, it's not just a diving board. The gospel isn't just that. It's not an entry point into the pool of Christianity. The pool is the gospel. You stand in the pool, or to fit the analogy, you swim in it, right? The gospel is the ground beneath your feet, uh, the song that we sing here a lot, in Christ alone. We sing about this truth. At the end of verse 1, it says, here in the love of Christ, I stand. As the song ends, we sing, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. The gospel isn't the ticket into Disneyland, right? It's, it's Disneyland, right? You stand in it. You don't hold it. Well, we are told that the gospel is what we stand in as believers, therefore I don't move beyond it. I need it every day. It's a natural conclusion. But then Paul finishes by saying, by it you are being saved. My only hope of being changed, you guys, is not anything in me. I must realize that my hope of being transformed and growing in life is not due to me having some great plan and white-knuckle gripping this thing with all my strength into becoming a changed person. No, it's actually letting go and opening up my hands and receiving God's grace day in and day out. And this church in Corinth, guys, they needed to be reminded that they had received the gospel, but they also are not meant to move past it. It's their lifeline every day. That's why Paul says, hold fast to it. It's a past, present, future lifeline. I never move beyond it. So therefore, you see that both Christians and non-Christians need the gospel. It's for both. We don't move past it, and we need to be reminded of that all the time because we're prone to think that we need to. But secondly, we see what the gospel is. I almost wanted to title this section, It Really Happened, because that's what Paul's really concerned about. He tells you what the gospel is, but then he goes at length to be like, hey guys, it like really happened. Okay, uh, verses three through eight, we see this. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is the gospel right here. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So we see here that Paul didn't make this message up. That's what he begins verse 3 with, right? It wasn't his best attempt at like starting a religion or something. He had received something, and he was just passing it along. That's what he tells you. He's the messenger, okay? Well, what's the message? That's what he tells you. Here we have one of the clearest places where we see what the gospel is. He says in verses 3 through 4, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul gets all historical on us. He wants the believers in Corinth to know and remember, and God wants us to know and to remember that this thing, this earth-shattering event wasn't a myth. It's not a great bedtime story. This thing really happened. Like, Jesus really is alive. Uh, me and my friends in high school, uh, me particularly, I loved the band Nirvana, okay? Maybe you think I'm great because of that. Maybe you judge me. I don't care, all right? Um, actually, uh, just this weekend, people were celebrating, which is a weird thing to say, the death of uh, Kurt Cobain, who's the lead singer of Nirvana. It was the 25th year anniversary of his death this weekend. 
I remember in high school, it was just so tragic to me. Me and my friends, and we'd sit around and we'd listen to Nirvana sometimes, and then some, inevitably we would just mourn the loss of Kurt Cobain. We're like, man, what would have happened, you know? And inevitably one of my friends would say, no man, Cobain lives. Cobain lives. <laughs> right? And we'd all go, yeah, dude, Cobain lives, right? <laughs> and what we mean by that, at least I think he meant by it, is the spirit of Kurt Cobain lives on in his music and in his followers. And we're all agreeing with that. Is that a Nirvana shirt? Yeah, yeah dude, okay. <laughs> this was not planned. This is great. Man, I'm just kidding. That's what we'd say. Guys, but that's, that's not at all what Paul means here. He doesn't say Jesus lives and everyone's like, yes, Jesus lives. The spirit of Jesus lives. That's not at all what he's meaning here. We get details. We are told Jesus' corpse was laid into a grave with no pulse, no breath, and he laid there dead, like dead, dead, for three days. And then he came back to life again of his own accord. This is what the gospel is. Jesus laid his life down and then he picked it back up again. And what Paul wants the church in Corinth to see is that, yes, it really did happen. This isn't philosophy. This is history. So I love, I love this. Paul's a great Oregonian here. He brings forward two pieces of evidence for this claim in these verses. He says, one, there was all these eyewitness accounts. Two, this was fulfilled prophecy. So let me just spend a few moments here looking at these two things. First, eyewitness accounts, what Paul spends a great portion of this whole section talking about in verses 5 through 8. He here in verses 5 through 8 names a slew of people, many of whom he points out are still alive at the time of this writing. And he does it for a reason, because he's wanting you to go, hey, if you don't believe me, go talk to these people, right? As Oregonians, I think we're naturally skeptical people. Many people, we want to try, and we want to deny this by saying, well, these eyewitnesses, they were lying, you know? Or they were really confused and just hallucinating. Or, if it comes to it, people will say, well, this was added later, so that, you know, to the Bible, to kind of beef up the authority and the claims of Jesus. Well, let me just quickly address some of these things, because this passage addresses it. It's really important here. Um, someone skeptical might say, well, maybe these eyewitnesses were lying. It's like a big group conspiracy here, right? Well, okay. Just you got to ask, what would their motive have been? Well, I've had people tell me before, well, easy. It's to get people to act the way they want them to. It's to act a certain way and to make people obey you, okay? My question always is, well, why would they want to do that? Why would you want people to act a certain way? And hands down, people often go to the idea of power. Well, man, if you could create a religion and have this sort of power and control people and what they do, that's a, that's a great motivation. So people would think, well, these new followers, they want to create a new religion, they want a lot of power and prestige. And so the question goes, okay, is that what they got? Did all these apostles and followers get a bunch of power and prestige? Did they get that in this life? Is that what they thought they'd get? Well, all you have to do is read their letters. They're right there for you. Read First Peter. Cephas is the first one mentioned here, Peter, who Jesus appeared to. What was his life like? Well, he writes to these people being heavily persecuted in the letter of 1 Peter, saying, hey guys, uh, I'm probably going to die just like Jesus, and, and you're probably going to do that too, but don't count it strange among you. Endure, because there's a hope that's to come. 
That doesn't sound like power on this earth. Or Paul, the guy writing 1 Corinthians, he writes in 2 Corinthians, God has appointed that we apostles to be the lowest of the low, to have the least power in society, to be the most despised so that we can demonstrate our hope is not in this life, but in the resurrection from the dead. Does that sound like a group of people seeking to have this like earthly power and prestige? No, it sounds like a group of people that really believe Jesus rose from the dead and saw it. Plus, I mean, just think about the fact that you can't really maintain a lie that's this costly for that long because all these people died for their faith. You don't maintain a lie for that long, and you might even say, well, people die for a lie all the time. Well, not for lies that they know were a lie. This will be on the screen. It's a, it's a famous quote from Chuck Colson. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So it's extremely challenging to believe that these eyewitnesses were just lying. Secondly, though, people might say, well, maybe they weren't lying. They were just confused. They all had like a, a Jesus dream. They, you know, they saw a guy in sandals and a toga, and they're like, that's Jesus, you know? And, uh, but do you see verse 6? What does he say? He says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And 500 people don't hallucinate at once. They don't do that. Thirdly, you might say, well, maybe they weren't lying. Maybe they weren't mistaken. It's just these supernatural claims of Jesus, they were added later. Well, the real Jesus, you might think, some people would say, when I read the Gospels, Jesus was kind of a, a left-leaning do-gooder who wore Birkenstocks, owned a lot of Patagonian gear, listened to James Taylor. That's the Jesus I read in the Bible. So this stuff must have been added later by the power-hungry church who added all this stuff in, claiming he was God, walking on water, just to kind of beef up their claims and stuff. Well, no, guys, you've got to realize this is among the most earliest of Christian writings. This, this letter dates back to 50 A.D., and 1 Corinthians is one of the very few books, especially where no scholar debates that it was written by Paul. And Paul says that at the time of this writing, there were 500 people still alive who could accommodate this claim. That's not the kind of thing you say if it's not true. So to postulate that the apostles lied or they were mistaken or that this stuff was added later, it's just not compelling. And Paul's going around and telling people, if you have doubts, Go talk to this person who saw it. Guys, something happened. But secondly, he talks about fulfilled prophecy in verses 3 through 4. See this reoccurring phrase in verses 3 through 4, according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, Jesus died for sins. According to the Scriptures, Jesus was raised. Jesus and the apostles kept saying, don't take our word for it. Look back at all the prophecies. People foretold that this would happen to the Messiah. And Bible scholars tell us that there's nearly 300 references to 61 specific prophecies of the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. That's 61 specific prophecies that all culminated in the person of Jesus Christ. There was a famous uh, study, a professor of mathematics, Peter Stoner, who gave 600 students a math probability problem that would determine the odds of just one person fulfilling only eight of those 61 prophecies, only eight. 
the students calculated that the odds of one person fulfilling all eight prophecies, just eight, again, of 61, are astronomical. It's one in 10 to the 21st power. Some of you are like, I have no idea what that means. That would be me as well. We were like, that's a high number, okay? Well, Stoner knew this, so he's trying to help everybody out. He goes, just think of this example. They did, the, they did the numbers. He said, first, blanket the entire earth with silver dollars, 120 feet high. Silver dollars, 125 feet high. Blanket the whole earth. Second, mark one of those dollars randomly and bury it. And then blindfold one person, you know, spin them around a bunch, whatever, don't spin them around, doesn't matter. Have them wander the earth, blindfolded. This sounds fun, right? And then just randomly reach down and grab a silver dollar. The probability of them reaching down and grabbing the one silver dollar that was marked and buried is the same probability of just eight of the prophecies being fulfilled in one person. Imagine 61 being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Guys, people can do some pretty shady things with numbers, especially if your last name is Stoner, okay? So it's important to note that this guy's work was actually reviewed by the American Scientific Association, uh, which stated, quote, the mathematical analysis is based upon principles of probability, which are thoroughly sound. And Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. They're like, yep, the math works. Wolfhart Pannenberg, a German scholar, said, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. Yes, it is. Second, if you believed it happened, you would have to change the way you live. Guys, Paul is not talking about keeping the dream alive or letting Jesus live on in our hearts. He's talking real resurrection. Something happened that made cowardly people brave. Something happened that made skeptical people believe. Something happened that transformed haters of Jesus into his worshipers. Something happened that gave guilty people hope. And something happened that made mothers and children bravely face death because of their belief in Jesus. Something actually happened 2,000 years ago that changed everything, guys. Jesus rose from the dead, and here we are in 2019, and people all over the world who have different education levels, income brackets, skin colors, cultural customs, languages, worldviews, They've all come to celebrate it and stand on it and are gathering all around the world on today, on a Sunday, because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. We staked our life in it. We stand in it. That's who the gospel's for. That's what the gospel is. It really happened. What does it do? We see a great example of what it does in verses 9 through 11, because Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. On these few simple verses here, we see clearly what the gospel does. 
it transforms people's lives. We see a real-life example of it. That's what Paul spends his time doing. I mean, just look at the rap sheet Paul has. He calls himself the least of the apostles. He says, I was untimely born. The word is a strong word. It literally means to be aborted. He thinks so lowly of himself. Why? Because of the way that he persecuted Jesus and his followers upon the first movement and spark of this gospel being spread. He did whatever he could to try to stop out what was happening how people were following Jesus. He's dragging people off to prisons. We see this in Acts chapter 7 and 8. We see what we are told about what he has actually done, how he persecutes people, because everyone's stoning this guy named Stephen. They're trying to kill this person for believing in Jesus and preaching this gospel. And they're all laying their, the people who are stoning Stephen are laying their, their cloaks, their coats at Saul's feet and Saul's approving of what's happening. And then we see at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, it says Saul or Paul was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. But then what happens just a few chapters later? Paul meets the real resurrected Jesus and things begin to change. How is it that someone can go from actually jailing people and breaking up families and approving of the killing of innocent people all because of the God they believe in and follow to all of a sudden advocating for what he gave everything he had in order to stomp it out? How can someone change that radically? How can you go from trying to kill people who follow Jesus to being at the forefront of trying to spread Jesus' movement? How does that happen? How does that kind of transformation happen? What does Paul attribute it to? He says it's by the grace of God. It's by the grace of God. This is what the grace of God will do to you. It'll transform your life, you guys. But it's not just grace in a vacuum. It's not just grace in thin air. It's not just some abstract idea of grace. It's the grace of God, meaning it came from God, that you needed grace from God that you didn't deserve, and God extended it to you. It's grace from God. He says, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am who I am today, a changed man. I am what I am because of his grace. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Paul was doing all he could to work hard to earn his standing before God, and he fell short. That's why he says, I worked harder than any of them. What did he deserve? We deserved God's judgment. What did he receive? He received good news of God's grace that Jesus died for his sins, even his. That forgiveness from even the most heinous of wrongs can be had. Guys, how, how wide, how deep, how high are the arms of, of Jesus and his grace towards you? I mean, number one, if someone like Paul can come to Christ and be forgiven and he's killing people, then what does that say to you? Yes, even you. If, you. if you sit here today and you think, I'm too far gone, I've done too much. You might think of uh, some sexual things that you've done you feel really guilty about. Maybe even uh, things you've done this weekend. Maybe you sit here with a lot of shame. Maybe you had an abortion. You can't forgive yourself. 
that kind of thing. Or the same thing that you consistently struggle with. You, you, you yelled at your kids again. You swore you're never going to do that again. And you're beating yourself up, and you're like, what's wrong with me? Like, maybe you're just extraordinarily convicted of your pride. Like, man, I, I can't receive any sort of criticism or something. What is wrong with me? Right? Why do I have to defend myself? Yes, even you, whoever you are, whatever it is, if God's grace is extended towards even those who have tried to put an end to people's lives who claim Jesus, then what about you? But number two, do you see the truth that's presented here? That your present can be, and under the banner of Jesus will be, with the resurrection ground beneath your feet, you will be transformed. Did you see the truth? You, your present can be transformed. There's a fundamental question that a lot of people are asking. You hear it on talk shows, you hear it in podcasts. Can people really change? Can cruel people ever be made kind? Can selfish people be made loving? Can cheating people be made honest? Can abusive people ever become tender? Can cheaters ever become faithful fathers and husbands? Paul had no doubts about the answer to that. We see in his own experience. Verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm different. I was formerly one thing. I was hateful. I was racist. I was abusive. That's not what I am anymore. Sometimes Christians talk about salvation as if it's just forgiveness or it's just turning over a new leaf or it's, you know, making some new resolutions or something to be a better you. No, you are trivializing the power of the resurrection. Jesus' salvation is not just turning a new leaf. It's not just a superficial change. It's radical change. It's radical transformation. Even our word radical, it comes from the Latin word, which means the root, from the root. That's what the word radical means. Your spiritual root was dead, and, and Jesus made it alive, right? And that changes everything. He gives you a new heart that loves God and delights in doing what's right rather than doing what God hates, one that loves showing mercy to others rather than exploiting them. And some of you, you sit here and you think, I'll never change. I'll never change. You might have even said that to yourself this week or said it to somebody else. You've done something or many things, and now you look in the mirror and that's all you see. That's all you see is your failure or, or whatever it is that keeps hanging over your head that you'll never be rid of. That's how you identify yourself. And you think that God's grace is a nice idea, but it's not extravagant enough for you. You might believe the gospel has a transforming power for others, but not for you. But guys, transformation comes, but not by focusing on your problems and trying to free yourself from them. Transformation ultimately comes when you turn your eyes from your problems and you turn them on the one who actually does the transforming. That's what happened in Paul's life. Why did he change? Because he saw the risen Jesus. And he was changed. It's taking your eyes off of your sin and putting them onto your Savior. It's you finally being quiet. And you stop talking and listening to your own voice that constantly says, I can't forgive myself. Or to the voice of someone who says, I can't forgive you. And it's listening 
to God that you've ultimately and gravely sinned against saying, look at the cross, I forgive you. It's you taking your eyes off of your failure and putting them on to Jesus' victory. It's you watching Jesus with the eyes of your heart walking out of the grave, saying, you can face death and your sin now because of my victory. You see, Paul didn't get his act together. No, he met the risen Jesus and received his extravagant grace. His root was dead, Christ made it alive, and transformation began. I think it was a year ago, I was driving from Cannon Beach uh, to Portland on that highway over the coastal range, okay? And uh, I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this before, but there's some forests along the way, and they have these, like, signs in the forests. And the signs say, this forest was planted in 2016. Have you seen those forests before? Because you drive by them, and you're like, that's kind of a meager little forest, you know? It's not as big as the other forests. It's not as mature, as extravagant as others, you know? Those forests are much smaller. They're not as grand as the older, more mature forests. So for whatever reason... Those trees were destroyed or new ones were planted. They were cut down. I don't, I don't know their story, okay? But I, I wonder, because my brain is strange, I get it. I, I wonder if those forests that are smaller and were planted in 2016 ever, ever look around at the bigger and grander forests and kind of feel discouraged, you know? I wonder if they ever look around at the bigger and taller trees and they just realize I'm not where those trees are and they focus on their smallness, and those trees say to themselves, I'll never change. I wonder if that's what these trees are saying. Well, trees don't talk or think, I think. But I'm saying, I'm, I think I'm a lot like those trees. The truth is, we know that if those trees are protected, if they're preserved, if they're planted with a healthy root and good soil, Guys, we know those trees will grow. We know they'll be transformed. We know that one day those trees won't be what they are today. In the same way, this is much like the Christian life. Transformation isn't only possible, it's promised. Not because we get to use God as a servant to make me the me that I've always wanted to be, but because God replaces our root when I receive the gospel. He plants us into the fertile soil of the gospel. He protects and preserves and grows us until the day that we see Jesus face to face. And he does this because he is transforming people for himself. That's the promise. This is what the gospel does. It makes us new people because we have a new God, a new master. We have a living Savior. So don't ever move beyond this. This is not Christianity 101, although it is. It's also 201 and 301 and whatever PhD level beyond is, right? This is what we've received. And if you haven't received this this morning, I invite you to receive Jesus. This is what we stand in. If you're a believer, we never go beyond this. This is what will carry you to the end. This will carry you to the end. Let's all stand together and pray.
God, would you take uh, your word and apply it to our lives? God, may we be hearers of it. God, may we respond to it. May we be doers of it, Lord. God, I, I do pray that um, just the things that we see here in this passage uh, would breathe life and hope to um, people this morning who are discouraged by their sin, frustrated by their lack of change or whatever it might be, Lord. And I pray, God, that we would hear fresh and anew this morning how we do stand before you loved and embraced because of Jesus. God, I pray that would do a transforming work in our lives, God, that um, even a city like Corvallis would be um, a different place, God, because of the work you're doing in the lives of people here. Lord Jesus, more than anything, uh, may you just increase in front of the eyes of our, our, our hearts, Lord. May you um, increase. May, may we desire you, Lord, with the desire that we long to desire you with. God, may we love you with the love that you've called us to, God, and may we see again um, how we are loved by you. May we respond to you with that love. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.